on or something that you can open up. I want to invite you, you or I want to invite you to join me in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, and hopefully when you came in, you got a bulletin. There's always those at either door when you come in. On the back of that, there's some notes if you want to use those or follow along as we just trace through the Word of God together. So I am grateful that you are here this morning, and I look forward to what God has to show to us this morning from the Word. Of course, having some boys at the house, uh, it's just natural that we have a concrete pad that was just perfect for a basketball goal. So one of the first things we did when we moved into the house a couple of years ago is we put up a basketball goal. So it's not very uncommon that you would find these days dad out there holding school. I get out there and I, especially the three older boys and I get out there and they think, you know, 14 and 12 and 11 and they start to think, you know, they're pretty salty and dad gets out there and takes them to school and shows them some of my old, you know, grade school moves when I used to bounce it on the hoops. And so we get out there and we, we play basketball and of course, as we're playing basketball, we divide up in teams and, and we got this team and that team and, and, and through the course of playing basketball, sometimes the scores get a little bit fuzzy. I mean, you can imagine if you're a father and you're just spanking your boys and playing basketball, they're going to have the tendency to try to fudge some of the numbers. And so nowadays, I don't even try to keep score. I just say a lot to a little. And so I'm, I, have a, I have a really a mouthy tendency when I start getting competitive. And so it's always just, what's the score, Dad? Oh, don't worry about it. It's just a lot to a little. But sometimes when you're playing basketball, especially with my boys, I'll be sitting there. And it's probably something like, we're probably like 28 and they're probably like one. I mean, it's something like that. But sometimes they have a discrepancy. And sometimes they say, no, no, dad, the score is this. And I say, no, no, the score is that. You know, when it comes to competitive sports, when it comes to that kind of competition, keeping score is important. Keeping score matters. The danger is, is when we leave the competitive sports behind and we go into life, we as adults, and some of you young people, you will learn this as you continue to grow because us adults teach you this, we keep score in life. We keep score in life. We start looking around and saying, well, he has this and she has that and they have this and I want this and they get that. And we start keeping score in life and start looking around. We, we have a phrase for it in our culture. We call it keeping up with the Joneses. And it's always about looking around and keeping score. What do they have versus what do I have? And our society and the culture is driven. And marketing advertisement has been masterful in getting us to focus on what we don't have and what someone else has and really at the heart of it is just you and I keeping score. You have this and I don't. There's a danger though when that attitude also comes into the life of the church. And the church starts trying to keep score. We keep score by looking at the churches around us. We keep score by looking at the world around us. And the church can sometimes be tempted to, tar to start keeping score based upon other churches, based upon other organizations, or just based upon the world. And we start to look at and say, well, this organization is doing this. This worldly idea is doing this. And we start keeping track and we start keeping score. And it gets even worse when we start going to God and complaining about the score we are keeping. Well, keeping score is what I think Peter is getting to here in 2 Peter chapter 2. Now, it's going to be a little difficult because as you get to 2 Peter chapter 2, and where we're going to start in a few moments there in verse 4, it's a continuation of verse 1 through verse 3. 
But it's the same time, instead of keeping us here for five hours on a Sunday morning, we're just going to break this up as we're walking through this together as a church. And so some of us, let's just kind of catch up on where we've been. Chapter one of Second Peter, he talks about their identity. He talks about the identity of the church and who they are in Christ and what they have in Christ. And so therefore, what God has called them to, God has already equipped them to. And so all these things that God has put before them and God has put before us, he has already given us the equipping. He has already given us everything we need to be faithful and obedient to him and the days in which we live. But there's a threat, there's a danger. As always when you have God's people, you're always gonna have the enemy. You're gonna have Satan and his forces and his spiritual warfare that is going on trying to distract us, trying to, uh, di- trying to fracture us, trying to get us to fight one another, trying to get us to get off of target, to get off of mission, and to get off of focus. And so Peter, here in this book, he turns to chapter two and he starts to address the dangers. He starts to address the threats. And and last week, if you were here, we talked about the threat to the church, the threat to believers. And we talked about three primary ways out of verse one through three, the fake news, the deceived followers, and the naive churches. So Peter says, there's a danger, there's a threat. So church, when you come together, recognize that yes, this is who you are in Christ, but there is spiritual forces at work trying to tear us apart trying to tear us down, trying to divide the unity amongst the church, trying to distract the leadership within the church, trying to distract the mission of the church, trying to destroy and to tear down and to marginalize the reputation of the church. And there are all these forces that Peter is reminding the church then, and by extent reminding the church today, be aware of the danger. So he talks about here in chapter two, he talks about the reality, he talks about the presence of the dangers, and then this morning as we're gonna get to it, he's gonna talk about the presence of the danger and the fact of the church is looking around back then and they're saying, you know what, we just quite don't understand it. We're in the midst of a pagan culture. We're in the midst of this secular persecution. They're trying to shut down our churches. They're trying to tell us what we can and can't preach. They're trying to say this is hate speech. They're trying to say that this is right or wrong. There's competing beliefs going on around us. They think this is truth. They think this is truth. They think people are born this way. They think people should be accepted this way. All these things are going on. There's conflicting information and the church is sitting there saying, God, if you are in charge and if this is what you want to do, then why are there a lot of other people in this world doing something different and seemingly getting away with it. I'm not going to assume that you've ever been there before, but I've been there before. And I start to wonder about God, if this is what I'm supposed to do to be faithful, then why aren't those people having a hard time because they're not being faithful? When we start looking around the church life and we start seeing the smiling face down in Houston, Texas, and he's packing in the people down there in Lakewood and he's just packing in the people and you're like, we know that is a false teacher. We know that is a false uh, truth. We know that he is not teaching the word of God and yet people are coming to him in droves and you may sit there and wonder, God, why does it seem like that is being blessed when that isn't from you? And we start keeping score. And we start making demands upon God that God never commanded us to give back to him. So Peter's going to come in here in this passage. He's going to remind us of the score. 
He's gonna remind us of the score of God versus this world. He's gonna remind us of the score of God versus Satan. He's gonna remind us that as believers, the score has already been settled. He's gonna come in this passage this morning and he's gonna remind us that if you are here this morning as I am and a follower of Jesus Christ, a believer in what Christ has done for me, I am saved, I am going to heaven, I have been forgiven of my sin. If that is you this morning with me, you can sit here this morning and say, you know what? I know what the score is. I don't have to wonder what the score is. I don't have to try to manufacture some score. I, this morning, can know this is the score. So I want to read to you into your hearing verses 4 through down through verse, uh, verse 10, if you will. And it's going to be a little confusing because, like I said, this is just a continuation. We're going to pick it. Uh, it just continues on in verse 3, so it feels like we kind of step into the middle of the story for a moment. But as you follow along, I want you to see with me this, uh, this picture that Peter gives us about the score when it comes to the things of God today. Let me just back up in verse 1 for the sake of context and consistency. Chapter 2 and verse 1, Peter writes this. He says, But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when, when he bought, I lost my place, when he bought, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Verse 9, this is, the, this is the key for the passage this morning. Then, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of, the des, of defiling passion and despising authority. I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. You may hear me read this or you may follow along as I read it aloud and you may say, well, Spence, then how is Peter going to get to the score? How is he addressing the score when it comes to the kingdom of God? And there in your notes, I put down there that Peter really gives us in this passage, talking about the false teachers, talking about the false heresies out there, he gives us two assurances. He gives us two assurances that we find in verse nine. He gives us four examples, two for the first assurance, two for the second assurance, and so that's how I've it out there in your notes, but he gives us, he gives us two assurances for the believers that we find in verse nine. The first one you see in verse nine is this, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. I put there in your notes that the Lord knows how to rescue. 
The first assurance that the believer has today that Peter wants to point to, he says, I understand that ungodliness is all around you. I understand that sin seems like it's prospering. I understand that it seems like the darkness and the debauchery and the immorality, and I understand the things that are opposed to the kingdom of God. You may think that they are graining ground. You may think that they are winning. You may think that they are overcoming and overpowering you, but Peter wants to remind the church today, he says, remember, the Lord knows how to rescue. You may may be like me and you're like, well, how is he going to do that? I just want to know. Show me how he's going to do it. So that's why Peter, starting there in verse 5, he gives some examples. So believer, you doubt that God can rescue you? Doubt the Lord can rescue? Remember, remember Noah. That's why he says there, back up there in verse 9, he says, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. Think back, remember back, turn back if you want to, back to Genesis chapter 6. What is Peter, Peter trying to remind the reader about? Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9, it says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then down in verse 11, it says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all the flesh corrupted their way on the earth. Notice he's saying that there is Noah and there is his seven people in his home and the rest of the earth. Everyone else was given over to ungodliness, was giving over to sin, was giving over to all the depravity that sin brings with it. Everyone else except for Noah and his seven members in his household. I don't know about you, but sometimes I start to think, well, there's just no one else out there that's holding to the faith these days. And then you look around a room like this. There's more people holding to the faith these days than we try to recognize or understand. And in that day, Noah was surrounded. He was surrounded with lostness. He was surrounded with darkness. He was surrounded with all kinds of ungodliness. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God comes to Noah and he says, all right, Noah, this is what's going to happen. I am going to destroy the earth. I am going to destroy everything that breathes, that lives, that works on the land. I am going to destroy it all except for you. And you know the story. He told him it was going to rain. John pointed out here a couple weeks ago, it hadn't rained up to that point. Can you imagine God looking at Noah and saying it's going to rain? And Noah's like, can I get a definition? Can I understand what is rain? Then he says, you're going to build a boat. What for? Because it's going to rain. Okay. Well, it's going to do more than just rain. It's going to flood. What is a flood? I don't understand all of these things, but yet Noah was willing to trust God. And because Noah was willing to trust God and because Noah was willing to do what God said, even though it may not have been our idea, even though it may not have been our plan, even though it may not have been our idea, God rescued Noah because God had a plan for Noah. Sometimes you and I find ourselves in trouble because we behaved our way into the trouble But yet God is willing to provide a way out if we will just let God be God and stop trying to fix it ourselves. And sometimes you and I get in the spot that God is willing to rescue us, but we are not willing to submit to God. And then we sit around and we complain and we hold God accountable because we were not willing to be the kind of people listening to God's plan for our lives. 
So Peter says, hey, listen, believer. Hey, listen, church. God, God has a way of rescuing those that are his. So he says there in 2 Peter, and, and verse 5, he talks about Noah. Then he talks about Lot. Well, that's hearkening back to Genesis 19. You go back to Genesis 19, and if you remember the story, Lot had separated from Abraham. Abraham it was Lot's uncle, and they had separated their, their flocks, their herds, their, 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 their kind of the possessions, their households were too big, so they, they separated, and Lot was given the first chance where to go. He went down to the, the easy grass. He went down to the nice grass, but down there where the grass was the greenest was also where the second tank was the stinkiest. And right down there is where you had Sodom and Gomorrah. If you go back to Genesis chapter 19, as, as the uh, Lord, I, feel, I believe it's a Christophany, uh, an Old Testament image of Christ, as Christ is there with the two angels, they come down, they meet Abram, they say, you're going to have a kid, and then they're headed down to Sodom to cast judgment upon Sodom, and right before, God looks at Abram and says, let me tell you what's going to happen. Let me tell you what is going to take place. And in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 15, or in Genesis chapter 19, they go down there. And they see it as just as it was, but there was one righteous man, according to God, that lived in the town. And his name was Lot. And I don't understand, I don't fully understand God's grace. And I don't fully understand God's mercy. But in God's grace and God's mercy, through the providential hand of the angels, they saved Lot from utter destruction. To the point that, to the point that Genesis 19 and verse 15 said that this way, the angels had already said, Lot, you and your wife, your two daughters and your son-in-laws, you all need to get out of here. We are getting ready to destroy this place with sulfur and fire. You need to run. And Lot is lingering. Lot is, Lot is taking his time and he, he's dragging his feet and he's not moving as quickly. Genesis 19 and verse 15, this is what the Bible says. It says that the morning dawn, the angels heard Lot saying, up, Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Verse 16, but he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. Can you just imagine the scene? You have Lot sitting there saying, well, this is what I know God wants me to do. But he's just kind of dragging his feet. He's just kind of slow playing it, kind of slow walking it to the point that God said, you know what? I have a plan for you. Grabs a hold of him and drags him kicking and screaming. You ever been like that? God said, I'm going to get you where I want you one way or the other. <laughs> either by your will or by will, my will, it, it can be either way. I, I, have a, I have a phrase that I use with the boys when it comes to their discipline. I said, I can, I can teach it out of you, I can work it out of you, or I can whoop it out of you. It's your choice. If you want to choose the teaching method, that's my preference. I would love to just tell you that's the wrong thing to do, and you just like, roger that, and I stop doing it. But not everybody is built that way. Some people, they need a little bit extra labor. They need a little bit extra dis dis discipline. They need a little extra work. And so God comes in, and not only does he rescue Noah back in Genesis chapter 6, but he rescues Lot there in Genesis 19. So Peter comes back, and he pulls these two imageries that they are going to know, and he says, if God can rescue them in those circumstances, believer in the 21st century, God can rescue us. God can rescue us. Now, what does he rescue us? We'll look there in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. He says, and the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. You see that there in your text? You can rescue them from trials. Some of your Bibles may say temp some of your Bibles may say temptations. It's the idea that Peter is saying, so whatever you're dealing with in life, you know what? God can rescue them 
rescue them, rescue you from it. Now, there's a couple of things that are implied in that. Number one, and I put there in your notes, that trials are a reality. Trials are simply reality. If you want to write down there in the margin of your Bible or you want to write down there on your notes, put down John chapter 16 and verse 33 or 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. Both of those passages, we are reminded that being a believer will come with its own fair share of trials and obstacles, temptations, if you will. It's not one of those things that you all of a sudden get saved and every day is your Friday and every day is a great day and you're never gonna have any more problems. It's not husband and wife that you get saved and you're never gonna fight again. Father, mother, it's not when your kids get saved that you will never have to discipline them again. It's not one of those things. We're, we're reminded and we are told that trials are a reality. Temptation, opposition, sacrifice, all of those should be expected. So he says there in verse nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial. So not only is the reality that there are trials in this world, so you need to understand, Christian, believer, you're gonna have problems. But there's another implied understanding there is that just because you have problems doesn't mean that you automatically can tell God when you went out of that problem. You see the construction of the verse that is there? You see the way that the wording is put together? It says, and the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. You notice what it doesn't say? It doesn't say, then the Lord will rescue the godly from trials, or the Lord has to rescue the godly from the trials, or the Lord rescues the godly from the trials when the godly says, I want to be rescued. It's this fact that God can and that God will, but whose timing is God operating off of? His. I'll be honest with you, that, that's, I don't like that. <laughs> I, I don't like that. Bonnie just recently um, was spending some time down there at the Department of Motor Vehicles in Shawnee. And now with COVID and all this other bureaucratic garbage they got going on, Bonnie was telling me that in order to go down there to do the testing when they open up at 8, you have to be down there at 5.30 to get in line. And you got to be there at 5.30 to get in line so you can sit there and wait for two and a half hours so when they open it up, hopefully you can be somewhere towards the front of the line so hopefully you will get to see someone that your tax dollars are paying to employ. You're going to get the chance to see someone somewhere that morning and you can find some satisfaction. It's the idea that they have this expectation. When I get there, then I will get some type of service. Sometimes in our life, we start going through these trials and we start saying, God, I need you to fix it today. And when God doesn't fix it today, you and I start to think, God, you're not fair. Or we start to think, well, you know what? I'm going through a trial, so God has an answer just right around the corner. We have no idea God's timing. We do not operate on God's timing. The Department of Motor Vehicle in Shawnee was not operating on Bonnie's timing. <laughs> and the same way with us, we are operating off of God's timing. Certainly the opportunity for each of us in this room is to understand that not only trials are a reality, but God's timing is an assurity. The problem is, is that when you couple the trials with God's timing, we often are tempted and led to start to think, oh, we are just a bunch of poor, pitiful people destined to be miserable. And we get our head down. We let our attitude slip. We let our spirit suffer, and we feel like we've been defeated. And I want you to hear from me this morning that defeat is a mindset.
for the believer. Defeat is a mindset. Where do I get that from? I get it from the text. Look in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. You see what Peter says right there? Peter calls them the godly. He says the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. And you may say, well, why is that such a big deal? Because he refers to him. It's their identity. It harkens all the way back up to 2 Peter chapter 1 in verse 3 when he says his divine power has granted to us all things. He's reminding the believer. He's reminding the church that when you have the identity in Christ and when you are in Christ, you have all things. You have all things for life and godliness. You and I are not gathered here this morning saying we hope we make it out of this. We are not gathered here this morning saying, we hope we survive this. We are not gathered here this morning saying, I hope somebody figures it out before it's too late. You and I are here this morning knowing the defeat has already, or the, the victory is already secured. We are not here this morning operating from a basis of defeat. We are here operating this morning from a basis of victory. And yet we have too many Christians, too many believers today that are wor working through their daily lives as if this world can defeat them. And that's what Satan wants us to think. Satan wants us to think that we are in this battle and we might lose. And as long as you think that you are in control of the battle, or as long as you think that you are fighting this battle of your own, or as long as you think that this battle is all about you, you will lose. But Peter, but Peter says, I realize your surroundings. I realize what you might perceive to be the score of them versus us. I realize that you might look around and you might say, well, that secular organization, that, that ungodly tradition, that seems to be more popular. People seem to be gravitating that way. Why in the world do, these, do all these people flock to this immorality, but they don't flock to the church? What is going on? And we have the tendency to put our head down, to put our mind down and forget that when you're a child of God, you're part of the godly. You're part of the godly. And yes, trials are going to come. And yes, you don't know when these trials are going to end. Some of these trials are going to end when you close your eyes for the final time on this side of eternity. But regardless, brothers and sisters, of the trial, when you are part of the godly, you know the trial is temporary. And some of us forget our identity and some of us forget that we are part of the godly. So Peter comes in and this first part, he reminds him, he gives them the two examples. Remember Noah, remember Lot, remember the Lord knows how to rescue. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly. And so if you are here this morning and you know that you are part of the family of God, may you be reminded and may you be encouraged. You are today operating out of victory. You are not operating out of defeat and anything that the world pulls your way at the best, at the most, might just be a trial. They can't take heaven away from you. I've said it before, I'll say it again. When it comes to opposition, they can't take away my birthday, and it's against the law to eat me. So when it comes to us in our personal life, they cannot take heaven away from you. But there's a second assurance that Peter gives us. The second assurance that you see there, still in verse 9, he's going to bring two examples out of verse 4 and verse 6. The second example is the Lord knows how to keep under. The Lord knows how to keep under 
punishment. Notice he says there in verse 9, he says, and then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So he's reminding us, Peter is reminding us that not only does the Lord know how to rescue, he knows how to rescue the godly, but God also knows, the Lord knows how to keep under, I just put it there for sure, but he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment. You say, well, Spence, why does that make a difference? Because, because in the economy of God and in the in the whole scheme of God, there is right and wrong. There is truth and there is lies. There is saved and there is lost. There is sin and there is righteousness. All these things are there. And sometimes you and I may be tempted to think, well, if they're getting away with it, that must mean it's okay. Or they're doing it, so that must mean that I can do it. And if you're a parent in the room, you've heard this before. If you've had more than one children, when one child disobeys, he goes and says, well, the second child is disobeying. So therefore that justifies my disobedience. And that's not how it works. So he says, the Lord knows how to keep. The two examples he gives us goes back up there to verse four. Notice he says in verse four, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. What is he talking about? Well, if you go to Isaiah chapter 14, you get a picture there about how Satan, and Satan was one of the chief amongst the angels, and yet in his pride and in his assumptions, he thought that he could attain to the same level of God, and in his pride and his arrogance, God says, no, you have rebelled against me, and the Bible tells us that not only did Satan rebel against God, but a third of the angels rebelled with Satan, and their judgment and their punishment was that they were cast out of heaven, cast down into hell. Jude in verse 6 puts it like this. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So Peter wants to bring the reader back and to remind them that, you know what? God has the ability to punish those that need to be punished. We do not have to go around and be the spiritual police all the time. We do not need to go around with our bony hypocritical fingers and say, well, you're wrong for that sin, but don't look at my sin. We don't have to go around and start trying to play the spiritual conscious, the spiritual Jiminy Cricket of this world. We can go around and we can understand that God knows. God knows the score. God knows who are his. God knows who are the unrighteous. God knows who are the godly, ungodly. God knows who are the lost. God knows. And so Peter says, remember, God is in control. God has this taken, taken care of. Not only can God rescue those that are his, but God can also keep those that aren't his under punishment. So he brings the first example talking about how he cast out the angels. And then you look down in verse 6 of 2 Peter chapter 2, and he gives them a second example. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. He says, don't you not remember that when God came in and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, it was meant to be an example. This is how God deals with sin. Now, what was the sin at Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, the Bible tells us they were ungodly and they were wicked. But primarily it had to do with their choice of lifestyles. You notice Lot didn't go out and say, because here's the story. Let me just kind of give you the cliff notes. But the story was the, the angels came to Lot's house and came into Lot's house. And uh, towards the end of the evening when they were reclining, uh, the knock on the door. And the people, the men of the city were outside the city and they said, send the men out so that we might know them. That's the G-rated version of fornication. The stuff that is going on today because people said they are made that way and they can't help it. 
And Lot goes out to him and says, no, no, please do not act so wicked. And it was because of their wickedness, because of the rebellion against God, because going back to Romans chapter one, they denied, they denied the authority of God over their lives because they chose to live in rebellion and not just personally live in rebellion, but then they expressed, manifested, practiced the rebellion on other people. Therefore, there was judgment brought down by God. Jude 7 puts it like this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities will like, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now the way Jude puts it is, it's that it's sexual immorality. You see, sometimes in the church today, we wanna to try to separate the two. We wanna to try to put homosexuality, but sexual morality is different. Sexual immorality is sexual immorality. Doesn't matter your age. Doesn't matter your plans in six months from now. So young man, young woman, you say, well, we're married in the eyes of God. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you say, well, we're both, you know, we're, we're both older and alive. It's not a big deal. Immorality is immorality. And it's not just the homosexuality that God puts judgment upon. It's any immorality. And the church today, the church has done a very poor job. We will try to hold up and say, oh, you know what? We are against this, but you know what? We will turn a blind eye to that. And you know what it reminds us there in 2 Peter is that God has a way of keeping those that are practicing sexual immorality, that are being celebratory in their sexual immorality. God has a way of keeping those under punishment. And so Peter says, remember the casting out of the angels. Remember the punishing of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that God does not take kindly those that rebel against his word. And when God has given us his word and the word of God and that says, this is what you shall do. This is how you shall live. This this is how you shall order your lives and you and I take this book and say, we're not interested, we're gonna do it our way. God is not going to say, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that, proceed. No, God has a way of being just to those in his creation. So what is Peter reminding us? Peter's reminding us that first of all, that judgment is coming. That judgment is coming. Well, Spence, how do we know that judgment is coming? Well, listen to what the writer in Hebrews says. Hebrews 9 and verse 27 puts it this way. First, yeah, verse 27. And just as appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He says that every single person, when you die, you will be judged. And that follows up on the second thing you see there in your notes. We know who will be judged? We know who will be judged. You may say, oh yeah, I know who will be judged. It's those people. Those people will be judged. Careful. You wanna know who will be judged? Look around. Look around. You don't believe me? Look in the mirror. Well, Spence, that's not true. Spence, I am saved. Oh, I know you're saved. But 2 Corinthians 5 reminds us for those that are saved, we will appear before the Bema seat and not necessarily give an account whether we're saved or we're lost, but we will give an account for the life that Christ had given us to live and we will give an account for what we did with the salvation that we were given. 
Well, I'm not saved. Well, then you fall into the category of Revelation 20 when you're standing there at the great white throne judgment. And the question is, is does he know you or does he not know you? And it's not a matter of then that you say, well, I know you, God, or I know about you, God, or I went to church or my grandma went to church. It won't be a matter of any of that. The question will be, does he know you or not? That's it. And if he can cast the angels out for their pride and their arrogance, and they're thinking that they could be God, and if that little thing that they thought they were God cast them into hell for an eternity, if Sodom and Gomorrah living in their sexual morality, even though the majority has said it's even okay, even though they probably had scientific evidence to say, oh, it's normal, even though they said it's not a big deal, even though they said it's just a small problem because of their sexual immorality, because of the rebellion and sin, if God was willing to do that to Sodom and Gomorrah, then what will he do to us today? So he warns us, he warns us, the Lord knows how to rescue and the Lord knows how to keep under. Well, I can tell you're like, oh, this is so exciting. This is so cool. So let me give you some good news. So Peter's gonna come in and Peter talks about in the first three verses of this chapter, he talks about making sure they understand that there's a danger, making sure they understand the threat. And then as he anticipates the church's reality going, oh my gracious, there's a danger. Why would God let there be a danger? He wants to remind them that, hey, remember who's in control. Remember who's in charge. So that then brings us down to the good news. So what is the good news that we have? What is the good news that Peter is giving them? The first good news is this, that Jesus rescues believers. Jesus rescues believers. You may say, well, why is that good news? That's good news. That's good news if you're headed to hell. That is good news if your loved one is headed to hell. That's good news if your family member is headed to hell. That's good news if your coworker is headed to hell. That's good news if your old classmate is headed to hell. That is good news for anybody headed to hell that Jesus rescues believers. How does he rescue believers? Well, the Bible tells us, John 5 and verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It's one of those things. When you and I come and recognize I am a sinner, I have sinned against God. The penalty for my sin is death, but Jesus came, died on a cross, took my penalty, paid the penalty for my sin. And if I trust in who he is, I believe in who he is, confess my faith in him, pray to be forgiven of my sin. The Bible says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus rescues believers. Are you a believer? Second good news, the Lord provides a way. You go back to verse nine, there in the text, it says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. You go to, to 1 Corinthians 10 and, and verse 13 and listen to the way he puts it there. Let me turn back there because I, I don't want to mess it up in a paraphrase. Let me remind you what he says. He says, no temptation is overtaking that is not coming to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Notice he doesn't say that he will not let you be tempted. He says he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So you're sitting there and you're under temptation. You're like, God, why are you letting me be tempted? He's letting you be tempted so you can practice your faith in him. And when you are being tempted, guess what he's doing? When you are being tempted, he has provided a way. He is making a way so that you might still be faithful. You still might be obedient. You still might be what he wants you to be even in the midst of the temptation. The 
temptation is not the problem. It's how you respond in the temptation that reveals your spirit. So the Lord provides a way. So whatever you are dealing with this morning, whatever struggles you are going with this morning, however you feel to be oppressed, whatever you feel to be against you, however you feel the mountain, how high the mountain is, however you feel that is going on in your life, do know the Lord provides a way. Whatever you're going through, there is a way that you can be faithful and obedient to God, regardless of the trial and the struggle that you're in. It goes to the third one. And this is the one that I think is the best of all of them. That God knows the score. You can come to me and you can tell me you don't like the way I look. You can tell me that I dress funny. You can tell me that I'm not articulate in my speaking. You can tell me that I'm a blubbering fool. You can say a lot of things to me and I don't care because I just consider the source. But you come to my wife or you come to one of my kids and you attack them, it's a different animal. First church I was serving at there in 2011, they came at me. And then after they came at me, they came at Jaylene. And I remember sitting there so angry. It's where you want to do that whole righteous throat punch. Some of you have been there. Don't look at me like you're all sanctified. I mean, you just want to look at him in the name of Jesus. And I remember sitting there looking at God and saying, God, don't you see what's going on? God, don't, why are you letting this happen? God, she, she does not want to be here. I'm the one that told her we're going here. God, why are you letting this take place? I will be faithful. God, you, you let all the arrows come at me, but don't, don't turn them against her. And I remember God reminded me, I know the score. And I don't know what kind of opposition, I don't know what kind of trial that you may have been facing, that you are facing, that you will facing, but brothers and sisters, church, let me remind you that God knows the score. So it doesn't matter about whether they are getting the better hand or not. It doesn't matter if they have more toys than you have. It doesn't matter if they are having more success than you have. It doesn't matter if they're having more fun than you're having. It doesn't matter if they think that they are getting all the cookies and you're getting none. God knows the score. And so if you're here this morning and you're part of the godly, rejoice, rest in the idea that regardless of what is going on around you, be faithful, be obedient to God because God knows the score. And some of us this morning may just need to repent and say, God, I have been bitter. God, I have been resentful. God, I have been angry at you because I have not been letting you keep the score. Or maybe you're here this morning. And the idea that God knows the score is fretful for you because God knows you're part of the unrighteous. God knows you show up at church and you put on the face and you go through the motions and you act the part, but God knows that deep down inside, you're just an idol factory. There's a lot of other things in your life that take priority over God. There's a lot of other things that are gods in your life that are little G gods, and you are denying the big G God. And you know that God knows the score. Because you know that God saw what you did yesterday. You know that God saw how you responded on Friday. You know that God saw what you did with the resources and the time that God has given you all this last week. You know that God knows where your heart is at. And that should terrify us that God knows the score. 
And maybe you're here this morning. And this is the day that you just say, God, you know the score. Save me from the direction I'm headed. Save me from the behavior I'm pursuing. Save me from the games that I'm playing with you. I don't know where you're at this morning, but may I remind you, friend, this morning, that yes, we are surrounded by paganism, we are surrounded by idolatry, we are surrounded by lostness, and we are surrounded by darkness in this world. But take heart. God knows the score. Would you bow your heads with me?